Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. All right, so we're so privileged this morning to have with us Dr. Doug Graham, who really is no guest speaker. He's absolutely family. This is his home church, but we don't get to see him very much because of a few of his responsibilities. Number one, he is the assistant superintendent to the Minnesota District Council. Just so you know, that is one of these churches. There are over 1,200 pastors that his network oversees, as well as over 200 and two, uh, 250 churches. That's a lot of work. That's why we don't see him a lot. He also is now the interim president at North Central University. Uh, many of our staff, Many of our staff and many of you are employed or attend or have attended at North Central. North Central is also a part of our Kingdom Builders portfolio. So every year for several years now, a large portion of our giving has gone to help North Central continue to raise up future leaders, pastors, missionaries all over um, the world. Everywhere you go, you end up meeting somebody who graduated from North Central University. I'm not from North Central University, I'm from Southwestern University, but they're brother and sister, so it's all good. Other than that, Doug, he's a very busy man. He's also husband to our pastor, Vicki, who is ministry of, uh, executive pastor of ministry operations here at Cedar Valley. He's also a father of four pastors and the abuelo to nine and a half grandchildren which of all the roles, I'm sure that's his most favorite. So why don't we all do this together? Let's give him a very warm Cedar Valley welcome. (laughs) Wow, what a great introduction. I am so thrilled to be here. This really is home church for us, for me. Vicki being on staff, and we've known Cedar Valley Church even long before Vicki was on staff. This has been a, uh, a landmark church in the upper Midwest throughout the assemblies, even across our country. And so it's great for me to be able to, to preach and to deliver a message. I th- want to thank Pastor Neil for the opportunity, the invitation. I asked Pastor Neil what he wanted me to preach on, and he said, the Bible would be good for you to preach on. I said, well, that really clears things up, really nailed it down, really narrowed it down for me. I know that this is 4th of July week, and so happy birthday, America. It is a great celebration. Now, this message this morning is not going to be a traditionally themed patriotic message, but I think that from the text that we're going to look at it, we are going to unpack some really great insights to the good news of Jesus that proclaims an even greater, most important freedom that's available to all of us, and I think that you will appreciate it as we move on. Uh, All of my preaching these last 10 years of uh, now being at North Central University, my Sunday preaching has been preaching as a guest. And uh, for 30 years prior to that, 21 years as a lead pastor, all of my preaching was as a pastor. And preaching as a pastor entails uh, the weekly rhythm of studying and rehearsing and researching and writing sermons week after week after week. And during those 21 years as a, a lead pastor in a couple of different churches, I had, very, I had very few invitations to speak as a guest. And I was happy for that because the grind and the rhythm of preaching every Sunday and, and in years past, Wednesday nights and way back in the day, Sunday night as well, uh, it was enough for me to just feed the flock week after week after week. And so 
Ten years ago, I had the invitation to leave the pastorate and come to North Central University, been serving as a vice president for spiritual life, doing some teaching, and now the great honor to serve as the interim president in this transition of presidencies at our school. And uh, so what I do now as I preach uh, across our state, and most Sundays I'm not here, I'm doing a number of different things in different churches. I, I have found it difficult with my weekly rhythm to be able to do what I used to do as a lead pastor, which would you know, start on Monday and really begin studying and rehearsing and writing that message, uh, understanding the heartbeat of my congregation. When I travel across the state, I don't really know the specific heartbeat of every congregation, and I really don't have the time uh, because of my other duties to really do what I long to do, and that is to, is to be reflectful and be patient working with a text. And so most of my preaching uh, today as a guest is to pull from a bucket of sermons that I have preached a number of times, uh, whether it be way back in my lead pastor days or in other uh, situations of writing messages that really God has blessed and people have been fed by. And, and uh, so that's what I've been typically doing, but that's not what I'm doing this morning. This morning, Pastor Neil, uh, I know that Pastor Neil and Amos are working through the book of Romans. And when I got the invitation from Neil to preach on this weekend, and by the way, Pastor Neil and Kim, we hope you're enjoying the holiday weekend away from us. You have a deserved, much deserved break. And you love Pastor Neil and Kim, don't you? Put your hands together so they hear it and feel it. Because I know Pastor Neil is in his jammies watching this sermon. I saw it as an opportunity to lean into what was really a common, comfortable pastoral rhythm, and that is to be assigned a text and for a full week or more, ask the Holy Spirit three questions. Holy Spirit, what are you saying in this text that has been assigned to me through this series or as a guest preacher? What are you saying through this text? And secondly, the second question I've always asked the Holy Spirit is, Okay, now that you've told me what you are saying in this text, why is it important? It's what Pastor Neil calls the big so what. Because we need to understand not just what the text says, but we need to understand the urgency. Like, why is it important? Or maybe if we didn't have this text in the Scripture, what would we be missing if it wasn't there? All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, training, correcting, rebuking. In other words, developing righteousness and developing us in our walk with God. So every Scripture, every passage has meaning to it and has urgency to it. And then the third question is always this. Holy Spirit, how do we live it today? How do we take what you inspired these writers thousands of years ago, writing to an ancient culture much different than ours, how do we make it useful and how do we live it in the year 2023. So with the invitation, I said to Neil, I want to preach in your Romans series. And I thought to myself, because I love the book of Romans, and I didn't know exactly where he and Amos were as we're walking through the book of Romans, because I've not been here every Sunday. And I, but I thought, I bet you there at Romans chapter 8, because that'll be awesome. I love Romans 8, 1, that says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That would be such a powerfully, almost easy message to preach, the idea that you don't have to feel condemned when you're in Christ. Or maybe a little bit further down, maybe Neil already dealt with that, maybe Amos preached on that recently, maybe it's eight, Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for good to those who love God 
and are called according to his purpose. Now, not everything is good, but everything works to good. That would be a great passage. Oh, Pastor Neil, I hope you give me that verse. But maybe they're a little further down, and maybe he would give me Romans 12.1. I love Romans 12.1. Therefore, present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your pure spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I would love that verse. But those were not the verses Pastor Neil gave to me. And when you're preaching expositionally through a book of Scripture, you you have to deal with it all, even the tough verses. And don't you love how Pastor Neil and Pastor Amos have been unpacking some, some parts of the book of Romans that are not always so flashy and so easy to understand, and we walk away, wow, that's a great word. So I said, Pastor Neil, what's the verse? What's the passage? And he said, here it is. It's Romans 7, 1 through 6. And honestly, I, as he said that, I, I got a little nervous because I, I couldn't really recall in my own brain exactly what those verses are all about. And when that happens, it probably is that it has some content that I'm not as well versed on. And, and so I dove into that passage uh, actually two weeks ago, and my suspicions were really on point. It's kind of a weird passage. But as you peel back the layers, there is an incredibly powerful truth in our text today. Now, I want you to get to the place of being able to draw out this truth as I did, but I need to get you thinking in the right direction to get us to the sense of what these verses mean for us today in the year 2023, to get us to the place where where we can say and we can feel and we can say like, wow, God, that is a great passage of Scripture. I never thought about it like the way Paul puts it there. In other words, to get us to the place of understanding the gospel, good news, I have to get you thinking in the right direction. And to get you moving in the right direction, I am doing so in the title of the message. The title of this message is this, The Worst Marriage Ever. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. Doug. A title like that, the worst marriage ever. I think you're setting yourself up for the worst sermon ever. I mean, that doesn't sound like good news at all, but it is going to make sense as you hang with me. In order to accomplish what this author, the Apostle Paul, was striving for, we need to understand a little bit about him before we actually read the text. Paul the Apostle, the writer of this letter, and I know that some of you are here every Sunday. Many of you have been raised knowing the Bible, and a lot of this might be reviewed, but some of you might have stumbled in here. You might come into church. You might have not even known that you were going to go to church last night, but for some reason you woke up this morning and you said, I'm going to church. And I don't know why I'm going to church, but God knows why you're coming to church. And we welcome you if you're here for the very first time. And maybe just even investigating Christianity. You're welcome here. And so I'm going to do my best to make, make this, cause this to make sense even in your heart, as many of us might get it as we move along. Paul is the preeminent missionary of the Christian church. He's the first one called. He's the first one that's been raised up. He's the first one that is sent for the purpose of spreading the gospel. And that word simply means good news. And to take this good news to the ends of the known earth at the time. We know Paul previously under the name Saul. 
And when he was named Saul, he was not the preeminent missionary. He was the preeminent persecutor of the church. I mean, the dude is the big dog in the hierarchy of Jewish faith and practice. And so much so that this guy by the name of Saul, before he becomes Paul, is the preeminent authority in signing off on the death sentences of what they would call heretics, people who were following Jewish faith and tradition, but all of a sudden heard things about Jesus, and Jesus brings into this new covenant, this new way of living for God, and it created a threat to the Jewish hierarchy. And so they called upon this aspiring star amongst them who was zealous for the Jewish faith, and they authorized him to sign off on the death sentences of people who began following Jesus. And we can read all about that in the example in Acts chapter 6 and 7, which is the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the faith. Moving forward, we get to Acts chapter 9. Paul, as Saul, has been commissioned to find more people in whom can be imprisoned for their newfound faith in Jesus. The Bible says in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, that he was sent to Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way or any who were no longer following the law, but now they're following what was called the way or Jesus, says here that whether they were men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. That's powerful. But as he travels to Damascus, Jesus basically says, I've had enough. I've had enough. And it is the original come to Jesus meeting. If you want to know where that phrase comes from, it comes from this place right here as Jesus confronts Saul. And as Jesus converts Saul, and as Jesus transforms this man's life, and as a result puts a call on his life to not persecute the church, but now plant the church and spread the church. And eventually Paul has his goal to get to the ends of the known earth. And at that time, the ends of the earth at that time was the big city of Rome. I want to get to Rome. Rome was the moving and shaking city in all of the world at that time. I've got to get to Rome. But before getting to Rome, he hears a lot about the church. He hears a lot about Christians in the city of Rome. And so he writes them a letter, and that's what we have in our Bibles, the book of Romans. And in this letter, the content of which can be compared to our nation's Declaration of Independence, Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, all wrapped up into one. Another way of describing the book of Romans is to describe it as a one-volume, comprehensive Christian theology. Like, if you want to know what do Christians believe, just take out the book of Romans, and Paul is going to unpack for these Christians to firm them up in their faith, because they're going to face persecution, like all Christians are facing persecution. And what is it that stabilizes us in our persecution, in our difficult times? It's our theology. It's understanding what we believe and why we believe it. And so, in preparing and anchoring these Christians in Rome, he sends them this comprehensive letter with deep theology. But it's not just about theology. In fact, uh, the first 11 chapters are, could be defined as genuine Christian belief. What do Christians believe? And then chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, he gets very application-oriented, and in those chapters, he's basically explaining, based on what we believe, this is how we live. 
And then the final chapter of Romans, chapter 16, is a sincere, personal expression of gratitude to no less than 33 people in whom have been a benefit to the kingdom of God, and Paul identifies them. So, really, a simple outline goes like this. Chapters 1 through 11 is professed understanding of the Christian, of tr Christian truth. Chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 is a practical application of Christian truth. And then chapter 16 is a personal affirmation of Christian people. Now, with that, we need to read our text this morning. I'd like you to stand with me. As is our custom here at Cedar Valley, we read our primary text to honor the word of the Lord. And so if you will follow along as I read in the New Living Translation, Romans 7, starting in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Verse 4, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Father, thank you for your word. And by faith, we know that it is going to do a good work inside of us. Help me to treat the text properly and help us, God, to have a greater, greater appreciation of your magnificent love for us. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. All right. <clears throat> you're saying, now, Doug, I'd like to know what in the world that verse and those passages, those verses were all about. Well, what the author, the Apostle Paul, addresses in these six verses is he's, he's, a, he's setting the stage by appealing to us related to a bad situation. Really, he's, 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 he's going to describe through this passage a difficult circumstance that we all find ourselves in. It, it's, it's not unlike playing a card game and you get your hand and you say, you got to be kidding me. This is the worst hand in the history of Uno. I just don't, I don't know how I'm going to be able to use this hand. Or maybe, maybe for those of you that are into fantasy sports, I don't know, fantasy pickleball or whatever it is, you, you get together with your buddies, your friends, and it's draft day, and you draft all your players, and you walk out of that event, and you say, I got the worst draft ever. I'm going to get killed all year. Paul is going to surface something negative and difficult and discouraging on a spiritual level that is a re reality for all of our lives because all of us have to deal with bad, difficult situations and some of our difficult situations are not of our own doing. So to help his audience feel the difficulty or the discouragement, he's gonna use, he's gonna use a common metaphor that that we relate to even in the 21st century, the metaphor of marriage. 
specifically the nature of marriage. And so let's look at it closely. Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, dash, the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. So the law, quote unquote, the law, it's an obvious reference to the Old Testament. It's an obvious reference to the Ten Commandments. It's an obvious reference to all the hundreds of other Old Testament supporting laws that existed to shape and guide Jewish life under the authority of Almighty God. But the law was more than just a mechanism to shape and dictate and manage behavior. For Jewish people, the law was a means toward obtaining or at least sensing some aspect of spiritual approval, religious approval in the eyes of God. And it's at this level that the law, though good, became an unrelenting judge and taskmaster because the law demanded nothing but perfection. So what Paul does here. And by the way, Paul is not just a spiritual giant, he's an intellectual giant. And the Holy Spirit taps his genius by giving him a metaphor that's relevant to his day as our day as well, that's going to open up our understanding to how incredibly good the gospel is. Look at it again, verse one. Don't you know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as the person lives. We might say it this way, that the law has authority over someone as long as they live, but when they die, that law has no hold on them anymore. And he's gonna give an example. Here's an example of how a law, even an Old Testament law, no longer applies once you're dead. He says, for example, the law of a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. Now, let me just pause there. This is not gender specific here. You can turn it around and it could say this. For example, by law, a married man is bound to his wife as long as she is alive. Okay, so it goes both ways. It's just, in this case, he's using it in this fashion. So let me read it again. For example, a law, the law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. Now notice what he's doing here. The law, the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, uh, marriage laws that are pretty universal across cultures. In fact, we could say any law, any law that, that, that we abide by as citizens of America in our, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, anything that we are obligated to because of the law, it's only applicable when we are alive. We don't hold dead people accountable to any law. It's not practical, it's not purposeful. It doesn't carry any potential benefit because when a person's dead, they cease to absorb whatever there is to absorb by being held accountable to that law. And so Paul's gonna bring this to his reader's attention by talking about marriage. Because in marriage, while still living, we are bound together in what's called the law of marriage. And it's not just Christian marriages. Even in non-religious ceremonies, you'll often hear the phrase, till death do us part. So while we're still living, the law is in effect. But when death comes into the life of a spouse, 
The law of marriage ceases to hold the living partner obligated to that marriage relationship. Dead people are no longer married. Marriage is predicated on two living persons, which is why Paul further expounds. Let's look at verse 3. So then, okay, so then, or in light of what I've just explained, that you're bound to the law as long as you're alive, but once you're dead, you're not bound to it anymore. So then, he says this, if she, a wife, has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Now, I want to take a deep breath here and a swig because I need to say something really important here so that there is no confusion in the house or in your mind about this passage of Scripture. Romans 7, 1 through 6 is not about marriage. Like, it's not about what does the Bible preach about marriage and divorce and remarriage. We have other verses that give us direction on that, but this passage is not to be used to advocate for or against divorce and remarriage because that's not how Paul is using marriage here. He's not teaching on marriage. He's teaching on something more powerful and using marriage as an example or as a metaphor. He's referencing marriage in this passage as a way of telling us something really powerful about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus. And this really, really good news about Jesus related to what he did on the cross for us, proven by the fact that he was resurrected, is something that is addressed when we talk about the law, even the Old Testament law. To clarify this, Clarify this really good news, I, I springboard off of it by simply titling this message, and I re reiterate it again. The title of this message is The Worst Marriage Ever. And right away you're wondering, what is the worst marriage ever? Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're not in a healthy marriage. Your marriage is struggling and it's difficult. Or, or maybe you were raised in a home where your mom and dad's marriage was not good. Or maybe it's a neighbor. I'm here to tell you that this passage is not about that situational marriage. When I read this passage and I engaged in this marriage metaphor that Paul uses, I said to myself, I, under, I, I have a new awareness of how awesome the gospel of Jesus Christ is because I get what he's saying by using marriage as a metaphor. And it's not because I'm in a bad marriage. It's already been said, I'm married to Vicki, Pastor Vicki. Come on. Any man who has a bad marriage with Pastor Vicki is an idiot. She's a fantastic pastor and leader, and that's how you see her, and I know you love her. She's, she is an incredibly even better, wonderful wife. So this is not about this concept of marriage, a physical marriage being the worst marriage ever. So you're saying, what is the worst marriage ever? Well, it's not your marriage, even if you're in a struggling marriage. The worst marriage ever is not the third or fourth or fifth or sixth marriage of some celebrity who's having another train wreck. That's not it. In fact, the worst marriage ever isn't a marriage as we define marriage. When I say the worst marriage ever in the context of this message and this passage, I'm referring to our lives when we are bound by anything that we are attempting to do to get God's favor. 
Like whenever we are trying and striving, I want, I want God to smile on me and I try to work harder and I try to be a, I want to be a good boy. And I've been told all my life, be a good girl, be a good boy. And I, and I want to be a good boy and I want to be a good girl. I want to do the right thing. But I find, like Paul says in Romans 7, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the good I should do, I don't do. We're all in that bad situation. And we apply that to this effort to please God. I just want God to smile at me. And maybe you struggled to get your dad or your mom to smile at you, to tell you they were proud of you, and you just worked harder and harder and harder. And you've translated that relationship dynamic to God the Father. And you're bound. When you're married to the law, you are married to this incessant drive and need to try to put a smile on God's face by what you do. That's a bad marriage. That's a really bad marriage. Striving to be good enough for God. Trying to accomplish enough good to outweigh the bad. Hoping God grades on a curve. At least I'm not as bad as that person or that group of people. Working so hard to do the right thing. Assuming that God will see my sincerity and he'll, he'll judge me on my sincerity. Maybe it's the bad marriage of putting all your hope and at least raising your kids right so that they figure out God. It's a bad marriage of putting your head on the pillow every night and if you died in your sleep, you don't know where you would be in eternity. That's a bad marriage. Listen, all of which I just described was so much like Paul's life before he came to Christ. He was working so hard, living by the law, protecting the law, assuming that his near-perfect obedience to the law was gonna somehow cause God to say to him, like, Saul, you're the most perfect human being on the planet. Maybe I should expand the Trinity and include you in it because you're so true to the law. A little sarcasm there. And isn't that how we find ourselves when we're living by the law, we're living by other people's expectations, we're living by this improper understanding of God, and we get a little traction. We, we, we do the right thing, like day after day after day. We, we, we struggle with an addiction, but we just grit our teeth, and for several days, maybe weeks, we, we're not doing that thing anymore, and all of a sudden, we get a little self-righteous. We get a little bit now like God's now smiling on me. Look how spiritual I am. I've got several days in succession, and then the next day, bam, we fall again, and the law rubs our nose in our failures, and we deal with shame and guilt. That's a bad marriage. It's a really bad marriage. See, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about marriage to a behavior-based righteousness. Like to be right before God, it's all about behavior. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus would say to all of us and to those of you that feel guilt-ridden and shameful and all, he would say, listen, I know your mess. I know you're not perfect, and I know you're in this stuff that you know you shouldn't be in, but here's the deal. My love and commitment to you isn't based on your behaviors. 
In fact, my love and my commitment to you is based on my previous demonstrated behavior 2,000 years ago when I volunteered and I gave my life to death on a cross. I was thinking about you. And I know some of you say, well, how could Jesus have been thinking about me? I wasn't there. Well, you weren't there physically, but you were there in his mind. Because God, as God, knows everything. Long before you were even conceived, he already knew you. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Long before your very first sin, God knew you. He ordained for you to be conceived. He ordained for you to be born. He ordained for you to live on this world. He ordained for you to come into relationship with him. He ordained for you to come to understanding that you are engaged in a really bad marriage to the law, and he's made a way for you to be set free from that bad marriage. So let's look at the last few verses. Verses four through six. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Meaning this, he's talking to Christians. He's, refer, he's, he's causing them to remember the day they submitted their lives to Christ. The day you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. For me, it happened when I was 15 years old, 19, summer of 1979, going into my high school years. I finally understood, was told, was given the understanding that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a personal relationship with Jesus. And I gave my whole life to Christ, and he changed me. Upside down, inside out. He's saying, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead, that's Jesus, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, when we were still married to the law, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Do you understand what that phrase means? The, the, law, the law is good. The law points us to good behavior. We still live by the law in the sense that we obey the Ten Commandments, but we don't obey the Ten Commandments in order to please God. We obey the Ten Commandments because God's already smiling on us, and I just want to live for Him. But notice what the law does in this verse. It arouses sin inside of us. It's the, it's the wet paint syndrome. You say to your little five-year-old, don't touch that, I just painted that. What's that little five-year-old gonna do? Once you walk out of the room, they're gonna touch that. Don't touch, hot. Well, I wanna know how hot. <laughs> That's what the law does. It arouses this curiosity and we bear fruit for death, last verse, but now by dying to what's, what once bound us, by dying to what once bound us. What bound us? The law. I'm dying to the law. Now we've been released from it so that we can serve by the new way of the Spirit, not the old written code. We sang the song this morning already. I had to write down the lyrics. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Like, okay, Christians, you talk about being set free. Like, what does that mean? We've been set free from the worst marriage ever. Marriage to perfection, marriage to the law, marriage to obligation behavior. We've been set free from that. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. Salvation is in your name, hallelujah. He's my living hope. So, here's the bottom line. When I write sermons, I like to identify the what, the so what, 
And the now what? So the what is very simple, reiterating. There's a bad marriage worse than any bad marriage you could ever dream about that God wants to set you free from. He wants to release you from this really bad marriage to the law. The so what is this? Like you would say, what, why so important? What's the big deal about dead people now having not to be obligated to the law? Well, the, the urgency of this is if you never get set free from the law, if you don't get out of this bad marriage, your life on earth is not going to reflect John 10.10 where Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life abundantly. See, when you're still chained to this bad marriage, you're constantly being reminded of how bad you are and how you screwed up again. And that does not create a quality of life. Worse than that, the law will never save you. As perfect as you might be in following all the rules, that's not the basis upon which God is going to say, good for you, you met the standard, you're saved in your own works. If that were the case, Jesus would not have had to die. The law is not going to get you to heaven. So that's the so what. What about the now what? What about the now what? I think some of you might be saying, okay, I get it, Doug. It's a great message. I don't want to be married to the law anymore. I've been bound by the law, and I don't want to be bound anymore. And because you're describing it as a marriage, I want a divorce. I want to divorce myself from the law. But guess what? There's no such thing as divorce from the law of God. You can't, you can't divorce yourself. But here is what is a thing if you want to end your marriage to the law. It's called death. It's called death. Now, it's not death to the law in the sense that I, don't, I no longer have to live lawfully. Okay, the Ten Commandments still have application, you know, still not a good thing to murder people and to commit adultery. So the Ten Commandments are still appropriate. So we're not saying that we now get to live lawlessly. But what we're saying is we're going to be no longer motivated by the false idea that if, that if I'm a law-abiding person to the laws of God, it's going to save me. It's not going to save me because it doesn't save us. But here's what saves us. Here's what sanctifies us. Here's what transforms us. Here's what releases us from the law. It's when we die. Now, not down the road physical death, but right now, spiritual death to self. This is the gospel of Jesus. Paul writes it this way in Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified. He's talking about a spiritual death that you enter into if you want to be divorced or if you want to be separated from the law the marriage to the law. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body, trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the gospel of Jesus. Christ's physical death, his ransom, his payment, paid for the sins of all the world. It's a huge payment. His blood covered everyone and everything. But it's not automatic. Because while he died to make it possible, another death is required, and that is your death. Not physically, but spiritually. Death to self, death to self-will, death to self-authority, death to self-controlling everything. You and I must die completely, exhaustively, entirely, utterly to self. Otherwise, here's what happens. The law resuscitates itself, 
and we find ourselves in another bad marriage to the law. So the last passage of Scripture is this. I think we're familiar with the passage in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, that I'm going to get to. It's a wonderful, feel-good passage of Scripture. But it is even more comforting when we read a few verses before that. So Matthew 11, starting verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins. They had not turned to God. And he says to these people that are still married to the law, what sorrow awaits you. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus prayed this prayer. Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever. They think the law is going to save them. They think the law is what's most important. But thank you for revealing truth to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleases you to do it this way. Now here's our verse, verse 28. In the context of what he just said, then he says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. Some of you are carrying the heavy burden of sin in your life. You're tired of it. It was pleasurable for a season, but now it's heavy. But you can't, you can't, you, you don't have the power to cut the strength of sin away from you. You've tried. You need a supernatural power. Maybe it's not all out sin, but maybe you're carrying the burden of what other people have put on your shoulders to do and to become. It's a kind of marriage to the law, the law of my mother, the law of my dad, the law of somebody's expectation on me, and I'm carrying other people's burdens on my shoulders. Come to me if you're weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and compared to the marriage to the law, my load, your marriage to me, Jesus says, will be light. You know, there are a lot of people who will come alongside you when you're struggling in your marriage. And you'll describe all of the train wreck of stuff that's happening in your marriage. And, um, and, and you'll have friends say, you gotta get out of that marriage. You just gotta get out of that marriage. And I wanna just caution you, be careful whose advice you're following. Because as much as a bad spousal marriage is a tragedy, nothing compares to staying married to the law. So, I'm here to say this, that if you are in a difficult marriage, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Death to self, confessing your sins, surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus, inviting Him to live in and through you, it will set you free. It will release you from the law. And here's the bonus. Here's the bonus. For you who might be in a difficult marriage, or you're in a difficult situation with children, or you're in a difficult situation working with your boss or working with employees. You're at odds with people. Here's the bonus. 
The change that you would like to see in your marriage or the change you'd like to see in your neighbor or the change you'd like to see in your spouse or the change you'd like to see in your children just may come on the heels of the change that happens in you. When you are released from your marriage to the law. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. There's nothing more transformational than experiencing total freedom. I'm confident that in a crowd this size, there are many who identify with the incessant, never-ending voice that says you're not good enough. Might sound like an impatient parent or an ungrateful spouse who's always pointing out the worst in you. And I'm here to tell you that is the voice of the law. It expects perfection and we can never deliver. And as a result, we always feel bad and defeated. Listen, that's not the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus says something entirely different right now. Jesus is saying to every single one of us, you are 100% loved right now, even in your sin. But I love you too much to let you stay in that bad marriage to the law. It's not going to end well. Listen, listen. Here's the voice of Jesus. I want you to marry me. I want you to marry me. I want you to let me forgive your sin. I want you to let me to transform your heart. I want you to let me shape new desires inside of you. Listen, it's so simple that children do it all the time, but struggle, the teenagers and adults often struggle because God demands nothing less than 100%, not perfection, but 100% heart. Listen, Jesus says, like a spousal marriage, I want to give you my name but not just for half of your heart. Give me all your heart, and I promise this will prove to be the best marriage ever. Jesus is saying, I guess, I guess what I want to say to you is, will you marry me? Will you marry me? And will you say I do? You might not know all the implications, that's okay. But you know that where you sit right now, you're bound to something. It's like a bad marriage. And Jesus is saying, I can release you if you'll be married to me. And all you gotta do is say, I do, I do, I do. If you're feeling Christ's proposal, and if you're ready to say, I do, on the count of three, I want you to shoot your hand up in the air, okay? I know some of you are saying, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. Listen, you can choose to stay attached to a bad marriage or you can say, you know what, I don't care that it might be a little scary. There's some unknown. I want the freedom that Jesus gives and I'm going to say I do. Who wants to say I do? Raise your hand. One, two, three. Shoot your hand in the air. Yes, many, many, many. Just put your hand high in the air. Yes, you're saying I do to Jesus. I want to be set free from this, this bad marriage to the law, bad marriage to expectations, bad marriage to my own efforts to try to earn salvation. Several hands are in the air. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. I want you all to stand to your feet <clears throat> with their heads bowed, still eyes closed. We use the me metaphor of a, of a marriage. Now it's the metaphor of a wedding. At every wedding, there's the time where the bride walks down the aisle. And, and you and I, we're the bride. We're the bride of Christ.
the groom stands at the altar waiting for you. This morning, before we close, I'd like to have the prayer teams come to the front. And if you raise your hand, or if any of you would like to have special prayer for anything, I want you to come down to the aisle. I want you to come to the aisle. I want you to come to the altar. I want you to let it be symbolic of you saying, yes, I say I do. I do, I do. These prayer partners would love to just pray for you and encourage you. In fact, don't even wait. If you, are, if you raise your hand, if you need prayer this morning, just come down right now. Just step from where you're at. Step from where you're at. I would encourage you. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people might think. It's not about them. This is about being set free from that law of other people's thoughts about you. Who cares what people think about you in any kind of judgment that you are coming forward for Christ? Let's be bold and loud and proud that I'm getting married to Jesus. If you need to step down while I close in prayer, do that. Father, thank you for your great work in our lives. Thank you for your death on the cross that declared and made available a brand new marriage, a beautiful marriage, a fulfilling marriage. Lord, thank you that through salvation, through our relationship with you, we're cut free from a marriage that was always beating us down. Now we're in a marriage that affirms us and sees the best in us and sees potential in us and doesn't let us get away with our selfishness, which we know we don't want to live that way. Thank you. Continue to draw people that they might receive prayer this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.